Well, this evening is the same story as this morning. The plan was that Greg would bring the, the Word of God to us for the devotional, as we typically do on the first Sunday and evening service. And uh, the Lord had other plans. So you have um, in, our, in our bulletin, we had a certain text, uh, Psalm 103, 19 there. Uh, we're going to be looking somewhere else, actually to Proverbs chapter 30, verses... Well, I'll read verses 7 to 9. We're going to focus on verses 8 and 9. And this is a text that isn't about, well, it is about prayer. It is a prayer. Uh, But we'll see that it not only is it a prayer, but it really informs our prayers in some profound ways regarding how we pray for practical needs, practical matters. So I'll read Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, and go from there. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God, we pray that you'd bless our reading of this word and our thinking through its implications for our lives. Uh, Please teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This text provides uh, a profound window into uh, a sober and biblical attitude regarding wealth. We're focusing on the second of this author, Agur, that's the name of the guy who wrote this part of Proverbs, the second of his requests, which is really what begins with, give me neither poverty nor riches. That's really the heart of it. Then the sort of the, the, the positive request is feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then he gives kind of the two reasons why he makes this request. On the one hand, uh, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? On the other hand, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Uh, this is perhaps the best concise summary of a biblical view of wealth, how we view wealth. And it's an attitude that really the wisdom of it extends beyond simply the issue of what do we do with money? Of course, that's the topic at hand. But it really, the logic of it extends to how we view all of our material circumstances. This could have to do with money, could have to do with possessions, it could have to do with other life situations or health issues. And that's relevant to our prayer time because often when we're praying for ourselves or when we're praying for others or when we're bringing requests about prayer to a situation like this, to a venue like this where we're praying for each other, we have our prayer bulletin that is filled with uh, prayer requests. We have emails that go out with prayer requests and our, our, our RCG prayer uh, uh, email group. Often we're hearing about circumstances in life, material circumstances, health, possessions, things like job situations. And the logic of this text really informs us in, in regard to when these kinds of things come up, what should we really be after? What should we really be wanting and what angle should our prayers really take, what's really important. And the text gives us three dimensions to examine that I want to look through with you for a moment. The first is a suspicious view of self, a suspicious view of self. Do you notice how this author, when he's thinking about the different circumstances he might be in, what if I were to have a lot? What if I were to be wealthy? God were to open the floodgates and pour out wealth on me. Or what if I were to have scarcity? What if I didn't have enough? And either way, he imagines this scenario as danger to himself. 
Either way, what he envisions is that could be trouble for me spiritually. I am not, I can't necessarily trust myself to be capable of handling that situation well. And so his, his concern is, I'm not sure how I, would, how I would do in that situation. What if I was full? What if I had wealth and I was full and that led me to deny God? Now that might sound strange, but if we're realistic about ourselves and about our hearts, we know that this effect can, can be all too common. One author writes, Strange and irrational as it may appear, such is the depravity of our nature, that mercies induce neglect and often casting off of God. Too often, the more we receive from God, the less he receives from us. End quote. Ouch is right. And you think about places in the Bible like the parable of the sower. Jesus' parable, we, we hear about it in Mark 4 and Matthew 13, where the different places that the seed falls and it, it produces different results. This symbolizes the different ways that the word of God might reach people and the different effects it might have. And you remember the one where it falls among thorns. Uh, The seed that falls among thorns, it grows up and then the thorns choke it out. And how does Jesus interpret that one? He says, these are the people who the word kind of lands among them. It gets into their heart and it starts producing growth. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. And it doesn't prove fruitful. It doesn't last. And so Jesus is using the same logic of there um, there might be a situation where we have so much that our hearts are drawn away from the Lord to these other things. And it can have this effect of actually bringing us away from him. To have, uh, to have a lot, to have abundance, just imagine a situation in which you could press a button and you have all of your material needs met automatically. You'll never have to think about where it comes from. You'll never have to uh, be concerned. You have to work for it or anything. It'll just be there. And you'll never have to pray for it. Now, what would happen in your relationship to God? You would stop praying for a lot of things. And conversely, as a result of that, you'd probably thank God for a lot less things because you're asking him for less things. There are situations in my life where there's something that I assumed would just come through smoothly, something I assumed would work out smoothly. And as it starts getting closer, it starts appearing that that might not be the case. It starts becoming imperiled, whether a material provision or some other thing where I go, I didn't think that this was going to be in danger. And suddenly it's looking like it's in danger. And I wasn't praying for it before, but now I'm praying for it. Now I'm going, God, what if this doesn't happen? And I'm asking God, God, will you please provide? God, I need you. I wasn't depending on God before, but now I am. And, and maybe it's a near-run thing, but we get through it, and he provides, and it's okay. And it's the same result as, it, as I kind of assumed would be in the first place. But it was a lot rockier getting there. And I think, God, why did it have to go this rough? Why couldn't it have gone smoothly? And I just always knew it would be there. And then I think about, well, the the issue is, what is God doing in my life? The issue in God's perspective isn't just whether I get the thing or the situation. What God's after is, but it's almost like, I I don't think he's saying this, but it's almost like a biblical answer is God saying, yeah, but this way you prayed. This way you depended on me. This way you had a Godward focus that you didn't have otherwise. Think about things like health concerns where we're praying for ourselves and others and we're, we're beseeching the Lord. Maybe there's a, a concerning test result or, or, or symptoms that we don't know what's going to lead to. And we're praying. Many of us, probably most of us, go many years of our lives with, with fine health and we never think to ask God for 
to, to uphold our health. And we never thank God for the good health that we have. Well, suddenly when there's danger and there's, again, a peril that we perceive, we're praying and we're thanking God for the good that he is always pouring out on us. So there is a danger in having everything too easy, having too much, that we, our hearts, we don't depend on the Lord. We don't ask him for things, and then we don't thank him when he provides. So that's one spiritual danger that the author is alert to and suspicious about himself. I don't want to be in the situation where I never have to pray and I never have to rely on the Lord and I forget him. On the other hand, there is uh, a kind of an equal and opposite spiritual danger, and that is, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So there's a situation where if I didn't have enough, I would be tempted to resort to illegitimate, ungodly means to supplying my needs and wants. And I'm afraid that I would not be strong enough to overcome that temptation. Again, it's a suspicious view of self. I'm not sure I'd be able to handle that situation. God, please keep me from that situation. Um, It's important as Christians that we not valorize and celebrate poverty as a good in itself. Sometimes Christians have fallen into that trap Of course, for the reasons we just talked about, uh, Christians rightly maybe stand out from the world, ought to stand out from the world in being suspicious of the spiritual danger of wealth. But a a more robustly biblical perspective would also guard against celebrating poverty as though that were a good in itself too. The the sober reality of it is there are uh, another set of dangers on that side too, that we might uh, be tempted to discontentment. We might be more prone to grumbling. We might be more prone to underhanded means for providing for our needs. Now, this text, we need to be careful how we read this. It's not excusing sin. If I find myself in one of these states, it's not as though if I find myself wealthy, well, I guess I can forget God. Or if I find myself poor, I can say, well, I guess I can steal. Uh, God didn't didn't deliver me from that circumstance. So I, I guess I have free reign to sin. That's not, of course, what's going on here. If you find yourself in one of these situations, it might change the way you pray. Instead of, lest this happen if I, if I had so much, if you find yourself wealthy, rather than saying, don't let me have so much that I uh, forget you, you're, you're more praying. God, I have so much. Thank you. Please help me not to forget you. Please help me to steward this in a way that I'm, I'm, everything is, is about you and everything is acknowledging you. Same if we have scarcity. It doesn't mean free reign to steal, but what it means is, we're going to really need to rely on the Lord and seek him for help in not sinning in those ways. So that's the suspicious view of self. Whatever the case may be, I'm, I'm aware of dangers, spiritual dangers that these different circumstances will pose. The second perspective we gain from this text is a sober view of stuff. A sober view of stuff. Namely, either way, whether we have a lot or a little or we're right in between, the stuff is not an end to itself. Our possessions and our wealth are not an end to themselves. They are instruments for bigger and more important things. Our ambition as Christians should be modest to want just enough for our needs. To want uh, this kind of, we could call a golden mean, right in between these extremes because of the spiritual dangers that they pose. The author says, food that is needful for me. This is echoed in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10, where Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves 
with many pangs. So Paul is endorsing this, being content with, with our, our needs being met. We have food, we have clothing, we have these basics. We can be content. The love and the desire for more is a spiritual danger. Watch out. There's this sense of just being secure and being happy with just enough. Now, I don't think in our modern society that, that what's needful is exactly only food and clothing. Life has become more complex, and I do think there's a good argument to be made that, for instance, some kind of transportation is essential in modern life. So I wouldn't be too uh, rigid in saying food and clothing is all we will ever need. We, we need shelter, things like this. But the point being that we live in a society that is very bad at distinguishing between needs and wants, and that uh, malady can work its way very easily into our own hearts, and we can promise ourselves wants as though they were needs. Uh, God's word calls us to a sobriety about stuff that says just having enough is fine. There's a lot of value in living a life. There's a simplicity of our lives where we can be protected from certain spiritual dangers just having enough. And God alone knows exactly what enough is for you and me, but that should be what our hearts aspire to. Now, um, this way of viewing wealth makes wealth an instrument for more important things, namely in this case for living for God and avoiding spiritual danger. I want just enough that will allow me to live for God and avoid spiritual danger, avoid sin. Now, this perspective should not cause us to dismiss material suffering of others. So we want to be careful and say, on the one hand, this whole text is showing us that the spiritual dimension is far more important than the material. So we view our things, whether we have it or not, through the lens of how does it relate to a more important dimension, which is spiritual, how we relate to God. But that doesn't mean that material circumstances don't matter. That doesn't mean that material suffering doesn't matter. The Bible is very realistic in places like Job and Psalms. You see Psalms where people are crying out to the Lord because they are in true distress materially. And the Bible doesn't pretend that that isn't a problem. It just puts it in perspective. It relativizes it and says the spiritual is always the most important issue. So that's a sober view of stuff. It's never the biggest issue is what we have in itself or what we don't have. That's never the main issue. The main issue is always God. And that brings us to the third perspective, a central view of God, a central view of God. Do you notice that in both, first of all, the author is praying. So he's directing his attention and his heart to God. And then also when he envisions these two scenarios of having too much or too little, both of the situations, the question he's asking himself is, what would this situation do with regard to my relationship with God? That is the pressing question as he considers this massive life area of wealth and possessions. This is a huge component of our lives. And in, in this man's mind, the big question to bring to bear on this is, what does it do to God's honor and glory? Does it cause me to profane his name? Does it cause me to forget him? Now, this is the lesson that extends far beyond money, and it really encompasses every matter of our lives. How does this translate to my trusting, obeying, and glorifying the name of God? That's always the main issue with every aspect of our lives. And again, this has to do with money. This has to do with things like our employment situation. This has to do with all of our social relationships, all of our interactions with others. This has to do with our health, uh, whether ourselves or somebody else is going through a health crisis. The, the bottom line, most important thing is always what's going on with God's glory, what's going on with this person's relationship with God. Not to say that the material doesn't matter, but it's always 
an instrument toward a, a greater end, which is what's going on with God. Yeah, when Greg, in his, in his series through Colossians, pretty soon is going to get to Colossians 3.17, this wonderful verse is just sort of this life-encompassing verse about our life priorities in Christ. It says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the logic of Colossians is you belong to Christ, you've died with him, you've been raised with him. We heard about union with Christ when Greg was preaching out of verses 1 through 4. You're in union with Christ, and so every practical matter of your life is about Christ. Everything you undertake to do should be in the name of Christ. It should be for his sake. It should be as though he were doing it. In his interest, you do it. And everything is done uh, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything was with the heart of going... God, you're so good to me through Jesus to allow me to do these things and to give me these resources. That is a great perspective on this. Everything is about God. Everything is about our standing with Christ, with whom we've been united and in whom we're saved. God is always the important one. So as we pray, we're going to transition to praying through some of these things. We, we do pray for healing for people who are ill and have medical issues. We pray for, for needs. We pray for that job to come through if somebody needs a job. We pray for that provision. If there's a big repair needed, we can pray for all those things. But in that, there's always an angle that says, God, would you glorify yourself in this person's life? Would you increase this person's faith? Would you show yourself faithful and, and win praise for your name through what you're doing? And so on and so forth. There's any number of spiritual ways that we can pray for any of these practical needs. And in all of that, what we're reflecting and what we're doing is the prayer that says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done. May that be the thread that under, underlies all of our prayers.